You're listening to the ABC Music Talk podcast. In this episode, I get to talk about a subject which I think is crucial for us all to spend time thinking about. One which should trigger the question, how can I contribute? And that is sustainability. I've put it in the current affairs category because my guest in this episode is in the middle of rolling out a campaign which I think many in the music industry can relate to and need to think about. And that is the subject of frivolous flying under the campaign title of Why Wing It? But first, a quick reminder about my sponsor, Rota. Rota is for artists, managers, labels, or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rota makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rota logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. Now, my guest in this episode is a former music industry executive who managed to escape, hmm. or at least that's how I like to think about it. Uh, and he's now Managing Director of the Enterprise Division of the incredible company Hubbub. Welcome to the show, Alex Robinson. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's quite all right. Um, so uh, before we get into the, the Why Wing It campaign, um, Alex, uh, who has the, the best first name ever, I believe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Isn't that the, isn't that the best club it's, to be it's, in? It's right up there. Every Alex is great. That's what I find. Uh, we, uh, we we first met when you were at the legendary label Stone's Throw. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, Aloe Black, MF Doom, and of course, um, the uh, the wonderful Peanut Butter Wolf mm-hmm. uh, founder. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what what is your background there? Because I know there's more to it than that. Because you, you had, a few, I think, a job before that in the music industry. I did. Yeah, so, so I went straight from university to a um, sales job at Vital, the mm. independent distributor. Oh, wow. So I was, I was selling records to record shops at the point that all the record shops were closing. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I started a vinyl label just at the point where vinyl was disappearing. Right. So, yeah. Right. We... <laughs> so I think I was like the last expansion of the sales team before it started kind of shrinking. Then I, um, I moved down into the sort of dance specialist um, section of right. that company because okay. I was like the hip hop expert, and then um, we were joined on with Pias, the record label mm-hmm. group, and Pias did a deal with Stone's Throw, the label in in California, and I was a Stone's Throw just obsessive. Like, as, as, a lot, as a lot of people were, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from like, like for years. So I couldn't believe that this office on the other side of the car park could get me access. I mean, my, my ambitions were really low. I was like, there are some stickers coming out with the Jolib album that are only available in the US. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a seven inch which isn't you know which I can't get unless I'm in like New York or LA. Yeah, so so I started hassling them, saying, you know, can I um, can I help? Can I can I do anything to get a hold of this sure. stuff? And in the end, they said, well, there is something you can do. You can take a week's holiday from your job and drive Peanut Butter Wolf around the country to do DJ gigs as a kind of unpaid tour manager. Lucky you. Right? What a gig. <laughs> <laughs> but can you imagine, like, for me, that was just of course, the, yeah. the best uh, experience I could I could imagine. Just... I, I guess a little bit like me, like I was just grateful for anything, right? Like, any sort of sniff of being close to the music industry. That, that was like I, I was right. felt like I struck gold. Yeah. So so despite the fact I must have been quite a, a sort of annoyingly enthusiastic kid at that, <laughs> at that point, I hit it off with Wolf and just sort of stayed in touch. And and then um, there was Egon, who's the manager of right. Stonestar at the time. And I I started working with PS the record label. I went into one of the first label services mm-hmm. companies in Togo at PS. 
and I was still running stones. I was running Stonestone in the UK Amazing. at that point, kind of, kind of, yeah. kind of. And then just got into this dialogue with them that there was so much more that we could do, and somehow persuaded them to let me set up a European headquarters yeah. for Stonestone, which started off literally in the front room of one of my friends. She had a desk in her living room, basically. So yeah. We started like that, but you know, then it really grew into a proper, Absolutely. proper operation. You know, the label was doing really well. We would, we had great campaigns in France and Germany, and it just kept growing. Um, so, so then I, I kind of had realised my like my life goal when I was, um, in yeah, my and, mid late, and you were like right, what, twenty. Like, so tick, what, what, right, what, what now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I don't know that I had that, exactly that experience, but yeah, I certainly, I started early, and yeah, it felt like, I, you know, I was sort of on this trajectory for a while, and then, then I de- definitely had moments of like, so what, what next? <laughs> like, this is, uh, I thought this would last for the rest of my life, and uh, yeah, and you got to try and figure out the rest of it. Okay, so, after Stone's Throw? So, so at Stone's Throw, we had this huge success with, with Aloe Black, mm. which maybe people don't necessarily remember now, but at the time come we on, had... Come on, break into a rendition. Uh, yeah, so we had this song called I Need a Dollar. Yeah. And it just went crazy yeah. in, in Europe. So I was doing major label licensing deals in all the individual territories mm-hmm. and sort of holding on to France where we were doing best. Mm-hmm. Were you doing the sync licensing because it was very popular that way as well? It did quite well with sync, maybe not yeah. as well as we expected. Mm-hmm. But it started with sync. It started yes, with an right. HBO show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, so I realised there was this huge potential, but Stonestone is quite a quirky operation. It remains as such, and it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna grow. You know, the records we followed up Aloe Black with were as weird as ever. So what I did was, I thought, well, I can do what I'm doing for them for other people. So I set up a label services company called The Other Hand, and I brought on a bunch of other American record labels who were in this spot where they were. They were big enough that they had loads of stuff going on outside the US, mm-hmm. but they weren't so big that they necessarily wanted a big a standalone office or offices outside. Mm-hmm. Who, who were some of the other ladies? So, Daptone, yeah. Sharon Jones, Charles Bradley, yeah. love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Rhyme Sayers, the independent hip-hop label, mm-hmm. big touring operation particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with, uh, with Decon, that is now Mass Appeal. Um, now again, which was the, the Stone Stone offshoot that, that went independent, lots yeah. of soul and jazz and stuff. And I did one-off campaigns for US labels and yeah. had a few a few others as well. Yeah. Um, and we were different in a way because what we did was we actually represented a label in Europe mm-hmm. rather than just plug them into some distribution and marketing services and they were just like another bit of catalogue. So we were we sort of went out as Daptone and got involved in all of their business, even if it didn't involve, even if it wasn't revenue raising. So you know, if the key artists aren't within town, we might show around the sites of London. You know, it was like like you would do if you were a record label. Yeah, sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah. So I mean, that was a small part of it, but um, <laughs> so I did that for for three years. Right. Um, and it. It worked well, grew nicely. I sort of stumbled into this time when label services was like the hot thing. 
I, I, yeah, it was one of those things that I think people didn't realise they needed until somebody went, oh, there's a company that will take care of all the things that you don't do very well. Yeah. Oh, okay, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Let's yeah. just have some more of that. Because uh, it, it's kind of, instead of like having to hire internally and like build your own team and take on those, you know, full-time uh, employment costs, which are, which are hard for small businesses. Yeah. To sort of just outsource all of that, yeah, project by project, and therefore often budget by budget, right? And I think as well that distributors saw that there were projects that just weren't reaching their potential because the label didn't have the resource in that territory to make yeah. the most of it. So you could, you know, when there was momentum, you could kind of pick something up. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I did that for three years. It went really well. Grew each year. You know, but. I got. I started getting both bored and a bit cynical. I've never heard that from anyone in the right. music industry. So the cynicism, yeah. So I was this. I was just very. I was both optimistic and kind of ideological. Right. I didn't want. So I had this tension. I didn't want to work on mainstream music, mm-hmm. not just because I didn't like it. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I'm going to work on something, I don't like. Yeah. I'm not going to work in the music industry yeah. because you've got all these other problems as well. Yeah. Um, but the music I like as I get older is getting maybe less and less commercially viable mm-hmm. just because of the way my tastes were kind of sure. progressing. And yeah. I was getting older. And it's hard on your 80th campaign to be to excited. Look, to be as excited. Yeah. And But of course for the artist mm-hmm. and often their management, that's the most important thing they've ever done yep and they want they believe it could be massive but they want you to believe that and they know when you don't yeah and so I found myself I'm not great I'm not great at convincing people when I don't believe in something so (laughs) so I just I just found myself kind of falling out of out of love with it yeah Yeah. and and it is I think it is a career where you kind of need to retain that you, need, you, yeah. you do because it's kind of to your point like everybody else that you'll come across is in love with what they're doing you know I think there's a couple of paths because I've got friends who reached the end of like in their 20s mm-hmm. and they just made the decision look I'm just going to treat this as business uh-huh. and they're working on stuff that they don't like right? but they're focusing on doing a good job being a professional you know progressing their career sure in an industry that they know right and with music that they kind of get but it's not stuff they're going to be putting on at home yeah sure right yeah i mean there's definitely a uh, realization as you get older that the music that you're often peddling is music for the youth and you're not the youth anymore and therefore it doesn't really relate to your life uh, everything from sort of like the imagery and the kind of the stuff that goes on to it um uh, it's it's actually it's a, you know it's one of those things. I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. I had uh, the um, the VP of, of creative marketing at uh, at Empire. Um, he uh, he you know we, he talks about a lot like when he's designing campaigns. It it you have to kind of understand the audience mm-hmm. that it's going into. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know you're going to miss. It's not going to look right. It's not going to feel right, or it's going to feel disingenuous. And so yeah, you do have to kind of still be immersed in it. And, and as you get older, it gets harder. Your priorities change. Right. And I think that was a key insight for me. Kind of had two parts. One was, in general, I don't want to be a middle-aged man chasing youth trends. <laughs> because I could see them around me and it just, it's not a good look. Yeah. 
And the other thing was I looked... Some, some people pull it off. Some people pull yeah, it some off. Yeah, people, some people, they just kind of bleed that stuff. But some people, it just feels it's like, it's like disingenuous. Right? Them. And there are people um, who just retain this, like, constant enthusiasm and fascination for what's, what's happening. And I, but I looked around thinking, well, who can I see who's like me, but 15, 20 years older, mm-hmm. and that they're happy, and they've built an interesting career, and they've been their skills and so on I found very few examples and I think when I really stopped and thought about it Mm -hmm. I was like well what are the chances of me fucking that trend Mm -hmm. yeah no fair enough Um, I think a lot of this uh, uh, I've talked a little bit about this on another podcast which isn't uh, aired yet uh, but uh, sort of that around sort of mental health and um yeah, I think you've got to like understand who you are a little bit mm-hmm. and be true to yourself. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to wind up in a whole world of pain, just generally, just day to day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very good. Okay. And so, yeah. So then, on the other hand, how did you get out of that? So, um, well, I sold it mm. to a distributor. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was not um, the type of deal that would, you know, get in the news. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like, like the IPOs that are going on with the uh, the major record companies. No, 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 D- no, different set of numbers. Yeah, different set of, of, of much smaller numbers. Yeah, but it was enough to give me some freedom to just take a, a pause, which is what I needed. Right. Because I found it very hard to think about what I wanted to do next when I was in just you know I ran a label services company. I ran my own little label. Yeah. I managed a couple of artists. I did a radio show. Mm-hmm. I was doing like going to you know clubs and and whatever at yeah. the weekends. You know my life, my work, my hobbies. It was all revolved around a pretty. You know, I'd meet people in the music industry who would have no idea about any of the things I did because you know I was like this little outpost mm-hmm. on the edge of the music industry. You know, right. Um. So I found it really hard when I was in it to really get my head out. So I just took some time. Um, to just stop yeah, and like try to learn how to relax again. That's important. You know, get back on track and do some traveling and thought about what I wanted to do next. And so I was really fortunate to be able to To, do, to have that moment. To do that. And you know, that's because I'd run, I'd run my own company. So I had a kind of pop that I was able to use to do that. And, um, that was able to kind of break me out of the cycle of like the pressure for the next thing. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and so, so then I, I decided I wanted to kind of carry on using my commercial skills and I still wanted to do something I believed in, mm-hmm. but I wanted it to be socially useful. Right, so, and so and that, so that, um, that piece of it, yeah. where, where had that come from? Was that something that you just, you had always been there and you just never really like focused on before or? It was always there. Yeah. This is where I go back to me being kind of, um, of ideologically driven you know I had this looking back kind of quite naive view that supporting this independent music industry was promoting like really valuable culture I was looking at what I was doing and tying it back to the civil rights protest movement of the 60s that I was and remain interested in Mm -hmm. um so had you, I, had you studied that at uh, college or something? Yeah, I did history at university. Oh, I did a okay. lot of American, American history, and, and, I, and I wrote my dissertation was on 
post-slavery um, US contrasting the North and South. So I, I had this sort of yeah, no, that semi-academic, you know, background. Yeah. So, um, so I, I knew that I had to do something. I believed it. I couldn't just turn up for work and kind of do eight hours and go home. Sure. So that was true in music, and it needed to be part of the next thing as well. But my horizons had broadened in that in that time, and you know I was beginning to be more and more interested in, in the environmental sector, but also in like what social enterprise was and what it could mean and what the future of it could be. Right. Um, and I ended up joining a scheme called On Purpose, which is just the most incredible thing. Where they take people five, ten years into their career, mainly bankers, lawyers, accountants, civil servants, people like that, who just did the obvious thing after university and then looked around a few years later and was and like, just, what, 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 that wasn't what I meant to yeah, do, right? Yeah, right, right. And then it tra- you get paid, if you, you, you join the scheme, if you get in, you get paid, mm-hmm. enough to live on. Right. And they train you a bit like a kind of MBA in socially purposeful business. Wow. And how's that, how's that funded? It's funded because you spend four, four and a half days a week in a social enterprise working for them. Oh, okay. So the social enterprise gets some highly qualified professional who yeah, doesn't know sure. anything about the sector for yeah. cheap. Yeah, yeah, right. And you get the experience of, of working in that environment, in that world, and then you get all this training and it's everything from accounting to storytelling. Yeah. Um, that was a year and it just changed my life oh, I'm sure it yeah. that sounds incredible and what was that called again it's called On Purpose On Purpose it's still going it's now very strong they're in Paris and Berlin oh, as well as London now yeah, wow. yeah. and there's a CEO programme too and how did you find it through the friends of friends okay uh, yeah. yeah sure yeah. Word, word of mouth marketing yeah. right. <laughs> as we yeah. know from the music yeah. industry and in the end my wife kind of put it in front of me she was like Alex you need to look at this right. I was like yeah Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. This looks exactly like yeah. the sort of thing I need. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Okay. And um, so, so then, and so at what point did you sort of, I guess, finish that and then find yourself in your current spot? So that was in, so I finished that in April 2017. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it's a year long. Mm-hmm. And I went straight from that to um, Hubbub. Amazing. This is my current spot. So just introduce Hubbub real quick. Mm. I will put like links in the in the show notes and things like that. Right. But but yeah, yeah, just for the purposes of this. So Hubbub is an environmental charity and social enterprise. It doesn't look like what you're imagining when you hear that phrase. I, I want to talk about that later yeah. on. But yeah, carry on. Yeah. So we're set up. It has a look and feel more like a creative agency. Mm-hmm. We're set up to do mainstream campaigns, environmental campaigns, um, that reach people who aren't green, who don't necessarily care about those issues. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about sustainability. We don't really talk about technical things particularly. What we try and do is get people excited and enthusiastic about taking environmental action. Mm-hmm. So lots of our work might be about food, or it might be about fashion. And we don't necessarily explicitly prioritise the right. environmental impact. What we think is important is that people start living greener and healthier lives yeah. and try and build momentum Absolutely. behind those things. And, and, and we do it with this very... You know, we have graphic designers in-house. We try and make everything that we do look as good as what you're bombarded with commercially yeah. all day long because that's what you're competing 
with for people's attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it is. I mean, since because I, I, you know, the reason why we're doing this interview in part is because uh, I've sort of watched your career via, as I mentioned earlier, th- through mm-hmm. LinkedIn, and mm-hmm. just kind of, I am absolutely mesmerised by anyone who can escape the music industry and find mm-hmm. something fulfilling to do after yeah. it. Uh, and, and, and actually, and I've said this to a few people for years, you know, the only other kind of thing I've ever really been interested in, mainly because I'm a bit of a nerd, a bit of a geek, is renewable energy. Right. You know, I'm quite fascinated mm-hmm. by kind of, you know, hydroelectric and solar and mm-hmm. the rest of it. Um, so, uh, you know, it's sort of, it's, I guess it just sort of struck a chord with me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth mentioning at this point, um, one of the things I didn't realise until I actually started to research this, kind of to your point about people don't necessarily know, I mean, you guys are, you know, heavily involved in this whole uh, Starbucks campaign. That, that is it just in London at the moment? The five P. Uh, no, cup? sorry, it's UK wide. UK wide, yeah. yeah so, okay. so anytime anyone buys a cup of coffee from Starbucks in a paper cup, yeah, they don't bring their reusable cup. Mm-hmm. Um, Starbucks charges an extra five p. Yeah, and as, then, as opposed to saving twenty five p, exactly which is the reusable thing. Yeah. So you can't actually pay the correct price in Starbucks. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that 5p comes to us and we run campaigns that reduce plastic pollution, that increase the um, viability and availability of coffee cup recycling, um, that drive a culture of reuse and refill. Yeah. We're trying to get those rates up, we're doing a lot of work on that at the moment. Yeah. Um, and, um, and we've been working with, with them for quite a while now, it's an ongoing partnership yeah I mean it's, and it's and it's fascinating the sort of psychology behind why you've done it that because I think it was am I right in saying that Starbucks had originally had the save 25p mm-hmm. if you use a recy- recyclable cup mm-hmm. but that that wasn't working as well as the point where they at the, point, at the till they say okay do you, okay we're gonna have to put an extra a bit of money mm-hmm. on this mm-hmm. you know and, and it, it seems to work better that way around because you were asking somebody for something rather than just sort of going oh you can save a bit yeah it does so it's based on a, a like behavioral psychology concept called loss aversion loss aversion there you go and the idea i mean the idea is that people are much much less willing to lose something they've got than to gain something so the famous study involves um giving people a mug right and if you give like one group of people a mug mm-hmm and another group you don't. And then the people you don't give a mug to, you say, how much would you pay for your mug? And they say, I don't know, three pounds. Mm-hmm. The people you have given a mug to, you say, how much would you sell your mug for? They'll say, oh, seven pounds. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because just having it, yeah, you somehow you, you attach yourself to it. Yeah, yeah right? true. So, so this is playing with that idea on a, on a small scale. Yeah. I love that. That's excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's so clever. It's so simple, so clever. I just, for me, because that was a campaign that I'd, you know, obviously come across because I do drink at Starbucks, probably shouldn't, but I do. Um, and uh, I had no idea that that was, you know, that was you guys. So it's, it's fascinating. What a brilliant way of kind of being able to fund some of your other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely made a big difference for sure. So, okay, so let's now talk about uh, the Why Wing It campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, I know you, you're working on lots of different things, um, so uh, you know, we can talk just generally about it. Um, one of the, I mean, Perhaps, first of all, can you just give a very high level kind of what, what it's focused on, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the other bits of it sure. together. So Why Wing It is um, a campaign 
that aims at frivolous flying and raising which is not easy to say I've got that written down as something yeah. I'm going to try and say later on but frivolous it's like a tongue twister so we don't say it out loud very no, often it's right? wise um, the, the idea behind the campaign is that there's lots of there's lots of noise out there about reducing flying mm-hmm. and messages about not doing something and particularly not doing something that people have lots of positive associations with mm-hmm. are really difficult yeah. and they often don't work yeah. and we're committed to not doing negative campaigns mm-hmm. so we kind of set ourselves this challenge can we can we do a campaign that can have an impact on flying and find positive ways of framing it so one of the other things we know is that doing very general campaigns don't work right so you don't talk about food waste mm-hmm. you talk about bananas okay right right because that's something tangible people yeah. can and kind of yeah. get and do something about and understand. Which kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how the whole presentation of Hubbub is not like, this is, you know, we're sort of green warriors and, right. you know, like you try and avoid that type of language. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So our, our banana's work is called Banana Drama. Banana Drama. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you guys have a little bit too much fun coming up with this stuff. <laughs> and we do, um, we do Pumpkin Rescue is a, is a big, beautiful. big thing now for us we do at Halloween. Um, so... Um, so with flying, we were looking at well, what's the really what's the really pointless flying that people actually don't really like doing that we can yeah. use to, to generate a conversation around this. <clears throat> and through our research, we we looked into stags and Hindus in mm-hmm. from the UK. Yeah. Um, because it turns out that that a really significant proportion of the travel that young people do is taking. Flights for stags and hares. Yeah, which it's fascinating to me because um, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But you know, flying to me means something completely different because mm-hmm. because of the work that I right. do. But yeah, I was really surprised to sort of you know sort of see that that actually was one of the most that like the that was one of the biggest reasons why people were taking yeah flights outside of kind of like the annual holiday. Right, I think we forget that less than half of the people in the UK will take a flight in a given year. Yeah. Just feels weird. And the, the most frequent flyers, I think the top fifteen percent take about seventy percent of all the flights. Yep, something we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> so, you know, there's a really interesting, I think, mismatch between the message that you'll get in the media, where any any campaign that talks about flying, you know, it doesn't pass the Daily Mail test mm-hmm. because the headline will be, you know, charity or government. Trying to stop to ruin you. Ruin your, your holiday. holiday. Yeah. It's not the single holiday. Yeah. It's the people flying to their holiday home. Uh huh. Twenty, you know, twenty yeah. flights a year. Um, it's the people who travel all the time for, yeah. for work and leisure. Mm-hmm. That's the vast majority mm-hmm. of it. Most yeah. people aren't really flying, or you know, they're having their one holiday a year. Yeah. So, um, but one of the interesting things about the the stag and Hindu thing is that um, so we did a lot of polling around this people don't want to do it they actually don't want they Again, don't want that, to that, go to Barcelona on the, on, yeah. on the stag do well it's, it's, it's often one I so I you know obviously you know I'm in that sort of target age thing uh, although a little bit past it now um, of, of the study and yeah I de- I've definitely experienced that in groups that I've been involved with where you often have a, a group of people from different sort of economic background should we say mm-hmm. And some people, you know, to take that trip to wherever, it's kind of whatever, it's not a problem, it's, a, it's fine. 
but sometimes there's those that have got kids or they can't don't earn that much money and you know and it's it's actually like ugh, I've got to take a whole weekend to go drinking or whatever it's, well, like, it's not really what I want to do and also if you do four in a year yeah true you know it, it adds up so I think we found that a third of people actively resented the bridal groom wow for, 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 making, <laughs> for making a joke which, which is crazy because it's turning something that's ultimately quite positive right into something that's like ugh yeah yeah but it's become kind of cultural and part of it is to do with with cheap flights and so yeah. on, but still, if you go abroad, on average, you're going to be spending significantly more. I think mm. we found six hundred and something pounds to yeah. four hundred and something pounds. Yeah. Um, so, and, th- and these are all relatable things. That's what I, one of the things I really like about the yeah. way campaigns put together. Like the people will sit there and listen to it because they go, "I understand this. This this means something to me. I've right. experienced this myself." Right. Yeah, right. And it's, and I think it's a way in. It's a way into talking about the flying conversation, which is. It's increasingly it's increasingly important. Yeah. And it's it's a really hard one because there isn't like with this with this campaign, what we're talking about is the brilliant things you can do in the UK, why people prefer it, all the advantages there are of the kind of staycation. Yeah. And we're signposting people ways of having like a great experience in the UK. Yeah. Both to help people design those stag and Hindus, but also to almost you don't want there to be a stigma where, like, if you do it in the UK, it's somehow less of a event. Yeah, yeah. Well, because right. it's it's often for people, it's a big moment in their lives. Yeah. Right. It's it's the and actually, I have amazingly, I have people from all over the world listening to this podcast, right. which is utterly mental. Now right. I know uh, there are like countries like Indonesia, they do have the concept of stag and Hindus. Obviously, UK, US, but uh, just for those that perhaps this like what are these guys talking about stag and Hindus. Oh. Um, so. Uh, just to explain, they are uh, a moment before uh, uh, marriage occurs, where you know boys and girls typically that's how it's split. Um, you know, break off and go and do something uh, as a sort of last hurrah before they uh, before they sort of like get you know, get settled down and, and get hitched, as we right. say. So that that's what they are. That's what we're talking about here. Sort of mini holidays, aren't they? That's right. And um, yeah, so I think we found out that just under half of all flights taken by men from 20 to 45 yeah. last year were for stag dudes. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. So, um, um, and as, you know, airports are trying to expand mm-hmm. um, and people are forecast to be flying more and more over the next few years, you know, most people in the world have never flown, mm-hmm. right? So you've got huge populations which are becoming more affluent, which might stop flying. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to stop. Yeah, to to really slow down, the airline industry can't decarbonize mm-hmm. because if you build a plane now, it's going to be in the air for twenty five years or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Technology is not really improved. Yeah. For decades, mm-hmm. and it's not looking like it's going to improve significantly enough. As I say, significantly, because yeah. the, the the planes, the newer planes are like you know like Norwegian make a big sort of fuss about the fact that they burn less fuel and they get there faster and all the rest of it, but. I don't know that it's a significant change. It's 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 both insignificant, but also whenever the airline industry has made like efficiency savings in the past, mm. it trades it off by making bigger planes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so um, and then there's these pie in the sky technologies, right? Yeah. So yes, there have been solar <clears throat> power flights that might take up some very tiny, small, local niche flights in the future. 
yes, people are talking about hydrogen-powered planes. If that becomes the fuel of the future, there may not be that much for planes anyway, but we're talking mm-hmm. it's too late. You know, yeah. We need to cut our emissions now, not, not in 2045, in 25 yeah. years' time. Yeah. So, um, so it's an unusual campaign for us because normally we're much more about getting people to take measurable action and really focusing on something super positive. Yeah. This is us trying to take what is a sort of negative messaging around there mm-hmm. and looking at the positive things. And we're supporting another charity called Possible, a rare collaboration in the, in the <laughs> charity sector. You know, it's like music is weirdly competitive. That's, it's slightly weird, isn't it's it? sort yeah. of sad, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So um, they have a scheme called Climate Perks, okay. which... If anyone's listening and they are in charge of their employment policies or Mm -hmm. knows the person who is, it's a scheme whereby if an employee takes a train to their holiday destination and it Mm -hmm. takes significantly longer, then you get an extra day's holiday as a result. So we have signed up for that up to two a year. Right, okay. um, To reward people taking sort of slow, slow travel, low carbon holidays. Yeah, okay. Very cool. Yeah, I think that sounds familiar because I think uh, I was going to talk about your the podcast that the company does. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, I don't know if it was exactly mentioned that way. It was more like a, an idea at the time because I think it was a podcast from a little while ago. Right. Maybe series one, maybe yeah. two, not sure. Yeah, uh, it is live now. So if you Google climate live. perks. Okay. Yeah. You climate perks, very yeah. good. I, no, I, I like the idea of it. And it's funny actually, um, just, you know, I, I talk a little bit about kind of some of my issues around this um uh but i've noticed like with uh, conferences like amsterdam dance event there were a bunch of people that were taking the train yeah. instead of getting the plane right. um, which is longer it's more expensive but they were you know quite actively kind of being like yeah i took the train and, and, right. and telling people about it people going, oh really what was that like you know the, the sort of moment of discovery yeah. really um yeah it was a train i don't know they've been around for a while um but yeah they still work apparently trains well especially once mm. you get into continental Europe, it's, it can be wonderful. Yeah. I went to a conference in Germany by train the other day. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it took me about an extra hour and a half in total. Mm-hmm. I had a far better experience. Absolutely. I got much more work done. I mean, if you're going to somewhere like Paris from London, the train is the best way of doing it because it's not just uh, like the speed of it because it is quicker, but um, it's quicker because you don't have all the airport bits. And the airport bit is <laughs> it's miserable. Yeah. It's miserable. Like that whole, like, and you've got to take your shoes off and your belt off yeah. and you'll take, you know, everything off. And they yeah. walk through the metal de- detector and still yeah. get frisked. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, it, uh, and it and the walking and the, the bit that, you know, airports. Uh, they unsettling places, they? are they? unsettling. I have a sort of love-hate relationship mm-hmm. with them. There's a sort of moment of excitement, but they're also, like, not great places to be sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah... Uh, but it can just take a lot longer. And also then when you arrive in France, the, the, the airport's nowhere near the centre of Paris, mm-hmm. whereas the train just drops you straight mm-hmm. in. Yeah, no, they, 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 I think people should spend a bit more time uh, looking at those things. Because uh, it is just too easy. It's like, well, I've got the EasyJet app or whatever budget airline on, on my phone. I'll just do that. Yeah, and there are, there, are, um, um, there are websites out there that help you plan your journeys between places, like mm-hmm. Rome to Rio, for example, will mm-hmm. help you figure out best ways to get places all your options what the train links are and so right. on so it's out there if you look for it for sure absolutely one of the other things i liked about the campaign was not just this kind of um awareness of potentially how much money you could save mm-hmm. which i guess if you're doing 
you know, uh, you know, one of the, one of these stag or hen parties. You know, money's an issue because it's often not just getting there and meeting other people. There's people who are organising events. They're doing paintballing or go karting mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, there's sometimes like uh, something that they sort of mm-hmm. lean on. Mm-hmm. So money's always an issue because mm-hmm. there's so many things to pay for just to achieve this mm-hmm. momentous occasion mm-hmm. in somebody's mm-hmm. life. And so, but that, but one of the other things that I liked about it was the 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 kind of the link back to other things that people might be doing from a sustainability point of view that, um, or at least that they're conscious of, like uh, it sort of says, well, if you don't do these flights, it's a bit like somebody not driving for however long it is. Right. Uh, years, I think, it, it, you know, isn't in the study. And then also uh, some, like, you know, by not taking these flights, it's like somebody being vegan for like a couple of years, right? It's like... Yeah, so I think if a group of 10 flies from from Brighton instead from London to Barcelona right. instead of going out to Brighton on the train or something then those emissions are the same as as one person from the group going vegan for well over two years yeah and I think what we're just trying to tap into and it's a really interesting topic that we are, have not solved yet is we, there's all this messaging about what you can do that's sustainable yeah right you can't see me doing air quotes on the podcast. What, no, but air quotes for sustainable. Alex is actually doing air quotes. <laughs> yeah, that's so, amazing. Because sometimes I, I say I'm, I'm not doing quotation marks, and I'm not. I'm genuinely yeah. not, but I, I kind of feel like I should say that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but so, you, you actually did it. It was great. Um, that might be on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what we're not so educated about is actually what really makes a difference. So... You know, I have had, I won't name in shame, mm-hmm. people say to me with a pretty much straight face, you know, yeah, I fly every week, um, but I've got an amazing bamboo toothbrush. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I have to say, I had a, a phrase in here and I was like, something like, um, uh, you know, sort of, it was, it's highlighting, you know, the other things that we need to do. Uh, more than just sort of you know shop in a particular aisle at the supermarket, right. so because yeah. so, it's it's kind of fashionable some of that stuff in certain communities. Right, so there's a kind of virtue signalling associated. You know, this is why nowadays in every meeting everyone takes out their nice water bottle uh-huh. or their nice reusable cup. Right, which you know five, ten years ago didn't didn't sure. didn't happen. Um, so I think that all of these changes are to be encouraged. Right. So I don't mean to laugh at the the bamboo toothbrush no. change. But what it is, is a question of materiality. Like, mm-hmm. what actually makes a difference? Mm-hmm. And what is kind of window dressing? And if it's window dressing, that's fine, as long as you know that... That on its own. That, that on its own is, is not much. Yeah. And when you look at the research of what people kind of understand, there are things that they really underestimate the impact of. Mm-hmm. Flying is one. Mm-hmm. And... Um, things that they overestimate the the impact of. So it's really important, I think, over the next few years to help people realise that simple things like switching to re- renewable energy, it might take you 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a really simple thing. Mm-hmm. can have a really big impact. Yeah. You know, if you can afford it, or let's say the government brings in some, some funding to help make this happen. If you know, only. We need to increase the energy efficiency of our homes. Yeah. That will make a huge impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but there's lots of other things that I think we're kind of taught make a bit of a difference and, and they're, they're quite small things. So, um, you know, it's good to do your recycling, for example. Mm-hmm. We do lots of work around that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and also I think it's one of those sort of, it's like a kind of gateway drug. It makes you, <laughs> That's a good way of it makes it. you feel like you're responsible sure. and you're doing the right yeah. thing. And that and it, some of it's forced upon you these days, right? Yeah. You know? what, what is which is that? great, which is kind of, it feels like that should happen a bit more. Like these things should be forced upon you. And I know that that's happening around sort of cars, you know, that won't be able to make gasoline cars in a certain period in time, like new ones. But mm-hmm. of course, then, as you mentioned earlier about the planes, you've still got this kind of 25 year, right. you know, moment of switchover that's going to happen after that. So even, right. though, even though that date in the future of, you know, manufacturers are no longer going to be able to produce gasoline cars, it's then extended way beyond that for the actual reality to hit. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, I mean, I, I mentioned the podcast earlier, um, which is called What on Earth. I mm-hmm. thoroughly recommend mm. it, not only because I'm a fan of podcasts, and I guess anyone listening to this presumably also listens to other podcasts. Who knows? Maybe it's just mine. Maybe mine's just the best podcast ever. It's not true. <laughs> um, but it's a great medium for like kind of learning about a range of subjects because you've got it's based on a series and, yeah. and they're quite short. Mm-hmm. They are way more professional than what I do. You mm-hmm. actually edit them. They've got like mm-hmm. music and bits and you know, fun things. But I really like the fact that it's not preachy, you know, because yeah. there is a moment of uh, kind of whenever I think anyone thinks about these kind of it, you know areas if they're, if they're not actively involved in it, they're like, Ugh, you know, like just somebody telling me I can't do stuff. Mm-hmm. But the way that they're phrased is just genius because it's kind of, it's often like um, if you do this, your life will be better. You will have more fun. You will right. enjoy things, but, right. you know, and and it's just phrased like that. And so there's there's that certainly as a listener, it was like kind of. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Why am I not doing that? Like I'm bonkers crazy not doing that. And, and I just think it's, I think it's really, really good. Um, and one of them covered flying. So uh, I felt like research, uh, you know, uh, before mm-hmm. doing this mm-hmm. campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned uh, a little bit about this earlier. And I have to say, I had a, a mo- I learned a lot, a lot of stuff, but also learned something about myself, which is uh, apparently I'm in the top percentile of people that are considered frequent flyers, mm-hmm. which when I think about it, it's crazy because amongst the people that I spend time with, I don't fly anywhere near as much mm-hmm. as they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just to kind of give the listeners a little bit of background on that, and I recommend you go and listen to the What on Earth podcast, um, because and, and then perhaps listen to the, the, the flying one as a sort of follow-up to this. But um, the the suggestion is that people should be taking no more than two flights a year. Flights, mm-hmm. um, and anyone that takes three flights or more, and we're talking about return flights, we're not talking about individual mm-hmm. exactly. legs yeah. or something. Um, but so return flights, but if you take um, you know three or more, then you're in a bracket of kind of frequent flyers, and the people that are in the top percentile of that take seven or more a year. Mm-hmm. Seven or more a year. Mm-hmm. Okay, I went back and looked at my social feed where I often just kind of post just where I'm going, just to sort of friends and family know that I'm out of the country. Mm-hmm. I did over twenty last year. Mm. And I think it's actually close to 30 because some of them I didn't put on my, my mm-hmm. social timeline. They're mm-hmm. just the ones that I... And so that's a mixture of a lot of long-haul stuff uh, that I'm doing almost always for work. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a lot of kind of like short European stuff uh, for conferences and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel terrible, I'll mm-hmm. be honest with you. But I'd never really thought about it like that before. Mm-hmm. Like, not really. Like, as in, because I hang around with people that, as I say, do far more flying than I do. Especially Americans, you know, they'll fly all the time in America because it's such a huge land mass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's often a connection between East and West Coast mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that I feel like they're always on a plane. And uh, so, that, I mean, that was a real eye-opener to me, I have to say. Um, so, I guess the kind of, like, the, the, like, my question to you is, for people that are in that bracket, that aren't just doing it because there's a holiday home that they just jet to every now mm-hmm. and again... Um, 
the face-to-face concept of what I do um, in, in the work that I do, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. There's no way I could have built the relationships that I have that have allowed the various companies that I've worked with and represented mm-hmm. uh, to succeed or achieve certain goals. or, or whatever. There's no way that would have happened unless I'd taken those certain flights yeah. to go and yeah. see, meet, shake hands, spend yeah. time with... Yeah and all the rest of it. I mean, is there anything that we can do about that sort of thing? I know we've got video conferencing, but it's not the same, yeah. is it? So, um, this is a tricky subject, mm-hmm. for sure, because there isn't a substitute for face-to-face mm-hmm. meetings. And we are very careful not to put all the burden on individuals, mm-hmm. right? It's not... if the way that we think about behaviour change, there are things that we can do to make things appealing for you to make a different choice, yeah. right? But on the other side, you've got, well, what are the systems and infrastructure that we are, that you are part of? You know, what, what's the culture um, and the possibilities there for you? So I think you've got a carrot and stick with this. On one hand, clearly we need to have more investment in better video conferencing technology mm. and ways of doing it is, it is rubbish it's it's the bane of my life I hate I spend a lot of time yeah. on video conference calls yeah. and I dislike them intensely. right I'll turn the camera off most of the time and you <laughs> I don't know if you've been to any big big corporates that have these rooms that have an almost like a giant screen and it's almost uh-huh. you know it's, they're getting better but you have to be in Deloitte to do it I tend to think my, my biggest hang up about it right and I'm, I'm on regular conference calls every single week with the, the various companies that I work with and there is almost always, in fact, always, every single time, I don't think there's a single one that I've been on where you've got a group of, say, four or more people that you're talking to in a room. You can visibly see when they've all switched off and they're not listening and yeah. they're on their phones, they're doing emails, they're just, you know, talking to somebody on the side, yeah. clearly not li- clearly yeah. not listening. Whereas I know if I was in that room with them, yeah. that wouldn't occur. Yeah. That wouldn't happen. Yeah. So video conferencing is not the be-all and end-all. Agreed. Um, so there also has to be in, investment in infrastructure for train journeys, where that's possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really like this kind of extra day thing, because it's yeah. kind of not a, directly a money thing. It's kind of a money kind thing. Kind of a money thing. Kind of a money thing. But, but you know, hopefully it's a soft one. It's not like someone's yeah. got to give you something necessarily. Also, it encourages people to try it. Yeah. You know, you do it. And you realise actually you prefer it. And, and you know what, like, the trains these days, Wi-Fi, I mean, certainly in Europe at the moment, I know we're so apparently exiting Europe, nonsense, but personal opinion, of course. But, you know, you can do work on a train. You can't really do that work, right, on a, on a plane. Because right. you have to right. turn it off. Yeah. Whereas sometimes there's yeah. Wi-Fi and yeah. things like that, but it's never very good, is it? So there's, I mean, so if, if it's your employer saying, take an extra day to, to get yourself to your destination. Yeah. But it's not like you can have to necessarily switch off or like put your out of office on, yeah. right? And I think as well, if you listen to our podcast on mm-hmm. this, and Leo from Possible will be talking about his proposal, which is that as people fly more, mm-hmm. then there should be a kind of gradual increase on the tax on flying. Right now, there's no duty right. on fuel on planes at all. So flying is being more or less subsidised, yeah. which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And then that would mean that, you know, your first couple of flights might be free. Mm-hmm. Your third one, you're starting to pay a bit more. It keeps ratcheting up the more and more you fly. 
So if, you're, if you really need to be somewhere and you're doing important work and it's of great value to you, you would still choose to take that flight, even if it's a bit more expensive, a lot more expensive. But what you can't do is take the, your 12th highly subsidised flight to you know, New York just because. Right. Or you might think twice about whether you really, really need to do that. And that's not ideal because the ideal would be we could all fly as much as we wanted mm-hmm. for next to nothing yeah. all the time. Yeah. But we're in a climate emergency mm-hmm. and that one way or another, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So better that we think about it now and start investing in the solutions than come up against the really brutal reality of it sooner yeah. rather than later. Yeah. And then, you know, our flying I mean, habits might be the least of our worries. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like the sort of severe side of this whole dialogue, isn't it? Because, And I think people do exactly what I've just done and kind of think about the immediacy. Like, how mm-hmm. would that impact me right now mm-hmm. with the way that I mm-hmm. conduct myself in mm-hmm. this on this planet? But you, I think it's we've never got to lose sight of the fact that we, what the reason why we're doing it is because we've left it too late. Right. I mean, I mean, you, you, I mean, you and I grew up roughly, roughly the same age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was being talked about throughout my entire life the, the emergency that we've got. I mean, I think it's kind of mental that we've sort of got ourselves into the, into the state that we have. But of course, you know, people are very short-sighted often on these things. Um, so, because I mean, what you were just talking about there—this sort of like idea of sort of mirroring taxation and kind of thinking about sort of a, a graduated response to it to allow people to to do a sort of a reasonable amount mm-hmm. because if we all did everything in moderation it would be much better mm-hmm. uh, but we don't we're mm-hmm. people, you, know, sort of, mm-hmm. you know we often do things by uh, through excess um, I, I just wonder like whether is it as simple as just kind of looking at your sort of your, your average person which is kind of where your study for the campaign looks mm-hmm. at which is um, yeah, the reason why people fly is because of stagnant Hindus that's not the reason why I fly no and and so like you know is it is it is it as simple as the way it was kind of explained on that, where you kind of got, yeah, the first one's for free or like, you know, without tax, mm-hmm. second one, small amount of tax, third one and so on have the sort of, you know, the difference between like our say 20% and 40% tax brackets we have in the UK, mm-hmm. right? Um, just wondering whether there could be kind of special, you know, allowances to ease people into that perhaps. Like, the biz- like if it's a business trip and you've got to kind of like say it's a business trip in the mm-hmm. same way, like if you spend money and you go down the, you know, the pub with your mates, that's social spending, but if you're going down with a business person for a business meeting, mm-hmm. you, it's taxed in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. So I should be clear that this is not Hubbub's no, policy. Yeah, no, <laughs> you're not, so, I'm not currently so campaigning for this. I'm mentioning another another charity's policy, so you yeah. should probably get get into those details with with them. Yeah, with sure. them. That's that's fair. I apologise, but I, you know, it was just I, it just got me thinking yeah. about like how do we how do we solve for this? Like how do like personally, like, I was thinking. How could, you know, as somebody who's often the manager of a team of people, yeah. how can I make this better? How can I improve this? Or at least just monitor it better? Mm-hmm. You know, I do, I'm trying to think back at some of the flights that I took and I'm wondering, were they all absolutely essential? Mm-hmm. Don't know. I mean, I think a lot of them were, genuinely. Um, but, you know, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, so, uh, there, so in, 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 in the What on Earth podcast, as just just said, we were talking, they talked about flying. Now, I listened to something else that uh, a, a former guest on the show, Cliff Fluett, was talking about. Um, I mentioned, I saw him this week, and he, uh, he said, oh, you should go and listen to the, the Elon Musk interview with Joe on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And there was a moment that, obviously, Tesla, you know, electric, 
and there was a, a thing that was covered on the What on Earth podcast about electric planes and they talk about kind of the problem with electric planes is that there's short distances, they're not currently mm-hmm. able to do mm-hmm. long haul flights and, and things like that. Um, and there was just a moment where, where Elon Musk said, um, no one really needs electric planes right now, that's not the problem. The problem is surface level transport. And now obviously he's probably going to say that because he's the manufacturer of like electric cars, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, also, I have a feeling just to sort of defend him slightly there is I don't think he was talking about the environment. I think he was talking about congestion and things like that right. as much as anything yeah. else. Because um, he basically, Joe Rogan said, have you got any other ideas for inventions? And he said, um, uh, I've had this design for an electric plane that has a vertical takeoff. So it kind of like a bit like a Harrier jump yeah. jet kind of shoots up in the air mm-hmm. and then takes off from there. Because um, they talk about the impracticality of flying cars and things like this. Right. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't know whether you necessarily even have an opinion on that. But it was just interesting, sort of, hear this person who's you know considered a thought leader and just sort of going, yeah, electric planes. We don't really need those. That's not going to solve the problem. Um, but yeah, I wonder what problem he was referring to because you know, as a share of global emissions, flying is growing fast. Yeah. So. Um, well, I think that was the bit that I was kind of stuck on a little bit because obviously in your study you talk about in it in comparison with driving a car, for yeah. example, which felt like a direct relationship. And he was sort of going, "Yeah, but electric planes, no one needs them right now. What we need to solve is the electric car issue." And yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I wonder, like, how accurate is some of this stuff? You know. Well, so I'm not an expert on the kind of macro level stuff. Yeah. Um, but clearly we all are using cars far more Mm -hmm. than planes. Um, Owning them often, so our purchasing choices are important. Yeah. Um, And it's going to use, you know, right now it's using a huge amount of oil. It's going to use a huge amount of electricity Mm -hmm. as well if we transition to electric cars. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, he's probably right that it's a more pressing thing to solve. But we've got to solve both of them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and just just sort of, it's worth mentioning that was a podcast from about a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. um, and these things seem to be moving quicker in terms of people's mm-hmm. sort of uh, reaction to them. Um, but yeah, okay, very good. Uh, so coming towards the end because we are close to an hour, and uh, and as I mentioned before, I never edit these, so uh, this is going to be as long as it is. Um, but you, you worked in the music industry mm-hmm. before, and um, so therefore you're probably in a fairly unique position given the work that you're doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. What else could the music industry kind of like do, just in general, around sort of sustainability? I mean, have you seen any other projects that have worked for perhaps other industries that the music industry could adopt? That's interesting. Um, I mean, we, you know, we have, I guess we've kind of kicked the habit of CDs to a certain degree. You know, I remember I did my university dissertation in part on the kind of waste that went on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the Sony at the time had a, a mechanical crusher uh, in the basement because they continually over manufactured yeah. for promo mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's mm-hmm. just all these CDs just kind of mm-hmm. just getting crushed and dumped yeah. to presumably landfill and all they needed to do was just reevaluate how many they needed to make but no one was doing that no one was thinking of that they were just spending budget yeah and they were cheap to make and they were cheap to make yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah um, I mean the, it's, that's a complicated one because the impact of streaming mm. is far higher than people realise, possibly higher than physical formats. Right, let's talk about this. So, you know, greening the internet is is one of those projects that 
it's going to take a while to break through to, to kind of public awareness. Yeah. That, you know, I, there's a statistic which I don't have at my fingertips about the percentage of energy in America, of electricity, domestic electricity in America, that is used by Netflix. And it's, it's vast, you know, right. sort of. Wow. And so we don't realise that our use of Spotify and YouTube and so on, mm-hmm. you know, that energy is coming from somewhere. There's mm-hmm. huge servers, you know, they're not all using green energy. Yeah. And they're ongoing mm-hmm. rather than the kind of one and done nature of, yeah. of pressing a CD, which is, you know, a relatively innocuous product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a <coughs> collection of vinyl downstairs, you know, this is an oil-based Mm-hmm. products so I have this weird thing where I have a hobby that's kind of yeah it's right. damaging to the environment I mean I try to only buy second hand records these days well that's one way of doing it. but also I think people if they're fans of music and they're buying vinyl yeah. therefore it's something they keep it's not as like the CD just often became a coaster and then it got thrown away right because right? it got scratched or whatever vinyl right. I think people are a bit more careful with and you know tend, yeah. to, tend to keep yeah that's true so I'm just trying to make you feel better, Alex. Thanks. That's yeah. Great. So there's going to be there's going to be this is not specific to the music industry, but digital consumption of, sure. of energy through these kind of platforms yeah. is definitely going to become an issue that people talk about more, and that those companies that the Netflixes, Spotify's, and so on are going to have to reckon with a bit. Um, another obvious one in the music industry is travel, mm-hmm. and it's not just executive travel. Yeah. It's like festival culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's touring and I know that people are looking into that um, there's a there's another charity called Julie's Bicycle that works yes. with the Arts Council yeah. that do lots of consultancy work with festivals helping them think about their best practice in terms of like having minimal impact yeah um, and and then you've also got you know I've made so many t-shirts <laughs> in my music industry. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a cotton episode on your podcast, isn't right. there? Yeah. So, mer- I, I've been out of the music industry for a while now, mm-hmm. but the amount of merch we made mm-hmm. that was designed for, often it was really low quality, and that was something that I tried to push back on. Yeah. And it was just so, so short term. Yeah. So... I don't know if that is still true that there's just still basically loads of promotional crap floating around but that's something that I think needs to be rethought as well well I think I, I, I may be misquoting this but and I forget the band maybe it was the 1975 or I like to think that it was because um, I, I know the manager uh, that where they were re kind of rebadging old merch so people could turn up at a show and kind of get like a piece of merch they bought before have I guess something ironed on, stitched right, on, okay. or something like that right. to kind of update it. Yeah. Which I thought was what a, what a really simple way of doing something like that. Probably makes it cheaper for the customer. It's less manufacturing for the, the band. They don't have to like produce all these units to make the unit cost yeah. correct. Yeah. It's engaging. Yeah. You feel involved. It's obviously cool. socially conscious or environmentally conscious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you don't have to lug it all around on your. You know, ship it from the states, oh, lug it look around, at that. And, yeah. lug it around on your tour bus. Like, there's often knock-on effects of these things, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would be the one that, who, at the end of the tour, would have to load it back into a van. Yeah, or get back in touch with the hotel in Switzerland where we'd left three boxes of merch. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, <laughs> can, can you bin it or try, ship it? Try and yeah. get it back. You know, all of that stuff. So, um, yeah. So this that's probably relatively small. Sure. In the great scheme of things. Sure. But 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 ultimately. 
all of these things have some sort of impact yeah. um, as long as we're aware that that one thing that we do you know this is your bamboo toothbrush thing right. as long as you don't just think oh well I've done that now yeah. that's it the, the planet's saved and there are you know there are bands um, who are stopping touring because mm-hmm. of environmental reasons obviously that's a privilege mm-hmm. if you're able to do that yeah that because that came up recently didn't it and there was a little bit of a backlash there because yeah. it was a bit like well of, of course you cannot tour you don't need to tour you've yeah. already done all of that but also so that's true but there's loads of touring that happens in the start of an artist's career that is also not that is also pretty pointless right so you know I mean anyone in the kind of DJ world knows that when they started they would fly to Ibiza well not even you know you would do the 400 quid gig in Dusseldorf because you were flattered to be invited oh, and right. that does nothing for your career <laughs> well, you get your name on a flyer somewhere right so there's a lot of you know there's a lot and that's true of bands as, as well there is a lot of travel often label kind of subsidised and pushed because they think well it's good to be doing something yeah right of course it's not strategic. Uh-huh. So I think thinking strategically, yeah. which also would save money, it's interesting. about what is valuable to the career of an artist. Yeah. And then from the festival side or touring side, it's also about, well, where do we want our ticket buyers to come from and how do we change our marketing? How do we incentivize people from nearer yeah. to come? Um, I mean, it's, you know, in some ways, a lot of marketing these days is done digitally mm-hmm. so you're not producing those posters that would be illegally put up around the UK or wherever mm-hmm. <laughs> or the flyers or you know right. there's, a, there's a little bit less of that going on yeah. um, but of course as we just discussed if everything goes onto these digital platforms and there are big server farms that are not powered environmentally effectively then uh, and a few thousand flyers is agreed not a big yeah. you know in the great scheme of things it's, grand scheme of things absolutely yeah. and also highly recyclable recyclable right. normally at least mm, yeah. it depends on yeah, yeah it depends yeah. on how they're made yeah. I agree yeah uh, but yeah very good okay alright so just kind of just be generally aware I just wonder that could be a new project for you Alex how about aim something at the music industry we've talked we have talked about it oh you have I don't think we're going to do it <laughs> but so, because everyone everyone in the office like goes to festivals is really into music, is really engaged and connected with that world. Yeah. And I'm not... So one of our my co-directors was in a band signed to EMI and, like, toured for a couple of years. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, um... And, um... Yeah, there's a few kind of music links. Avocado, so right. we have thought... But then that's not a good reason to do something. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> sure. I agreed. Um, it's a small industry, to be fair. But, uh, you know, in terms of, like, your impact as an organisation... It's probably better to look at the mass. I think there are other people looking at it as well. That's true. So, That's yeah. true. As you just mentioned, Judy's bicycle. Um, good. Well, I'm I'm done. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. I hope the campaign is a success. I hope it. I hope it really kind of you know get hits home and makes people mm-hmm. think. I mean, that's a lot of kind of what you you guys are doing, just asking people to have a little think. To have a think, but also to take action. Sure. That's the key. Yeah. Yeah, and actually the action that you, you sort of ask people to take isn't insurmountable, it's not hard, it's not. It, it's just often a small adjustment to mm-hmm. kind of how they conduct themselves, mm-hmm. just, you know, just making a change here, here, here there and everywhere, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's no, very good. Um, good, okay, well, that, thank you very much for coming on, Alex. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time. Um, so to my listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, I welcome all feedback, comments and suggestions for future shows. My Twitter handle is at Alex Branson. 
Uh, just if I don't follow you already, uh, put podcast DM in a message. I will follow you back and we'll have a, di- a direct dialogue. Um, or head to the website, www.abcmusic.co, where you'll find a contact page with my email address on. Thank you again.